this last week, I got a chance to be in Colorado Springs with college students from about 20 different campuses across the western part of the United States. And I heard a guy share his story. His name is Jim Ranella. And Jim is a small in stature guy, but just a giant uh, in the Lord. Uh, he's probably in his 60s now. But he told his story about growing up uh, in an Italian family that literally had links to the mafia. And over the course of time, he, he came in contact with this bodybuilder guy that shared the gospel with him, and Jim gave his life to Christ. And I mean, he was so excited about his newfound faith in Jesus that he shared it with his friends, his family members, and many of his family came to faith in Jesus, except for his dad. And he, he had a conversation with his father, and his father made the statement to him. He said he never forgot. He said, Jim, can a leopard change its spots? In other words, he was saying, you know, other people might can change, but I can't change. I've gone too far. Uh, there's no way that I can really change. You know, there are a lot of people that think that way. They think, you know, it, it's good for you. And I'm glad that God's doing something in your life, but there's no really way that God could change me uh, at all. But the truth of the matter is that God specializes in changing people from the inside out. Isn't that right? In fact, most of us in this room, you know, have been changed. We can stand up and say, man, I can tell you what I was like before Christ. I can tell you how Jesus has changed my life. And what we're going to look at today is how change happens, all right? So once you get your Bible, once you open it up to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We started our uh, study here in the book of Acts last week on the 1st. We looked at chapter 1. Uh, if you missed that, be sure and go pick that up so you get a little background to the book. Uh, but today we're in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at, you know, how does God really change people from the inside out? So let's just dive right on into it now. Acts chapter 2, beginning verse 1. You got, get your paper out, get your pen out, uh, get your device out, however you take notes. We've got a lot of content coming your way today. We're going to be diving in uh, to God's Word, all right? Acts chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, uh, and this is the Word of God, amen? Uh, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Now stop right now and circle the word Pentecost. What, what is Pentecost? Uh, well, the, the, it is the Jewish holiday, Shavuot. Uh, which, which is often translated Festival of Weeks, can be Festival of Harvest. It really celebrated the barley harvest, the first fruits of the barley harvest. And Shavuot means 50. So this took place 50 days after uh, the Passover celebration. And so 50 days after the celebration of the Passover, all uh, of the Jewish people were called back to Jerusalem to celebrate these first fruits of the barley harvest. And it is at this time that the followers of Jesus uh, were in the upper room praying. We know that at this point, according to Acts 1.15, there were about 120 of them in the upper room. If you remember in chapter 1, Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the world. You need to wait, and the Spirit of God is going to empower you for this mission. So there they are. They're waiting. They've probably been waiting about 10 days for uh, the Spirit of God to meet them, and they're in the upper room. And it is the Passover, I mean, it is the uh, Pentecost celebration, and then we get to verse 2. Here we go. And suddenly a sound like a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. 
And they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, I want to try to answer three questions based on this passage about how God changes our life, okay? How do we really see change? And I want to answer three questions. So here's the first question, and this is a fundamental question. But who is the Holy Spirit? This is what we're going to be talking about. In fact, he's going to show up quite a bit in the book of Acts. So who is, who is the Holy Spirit? We kind of touched on it last week. I want to do a little bit deeper dive today. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. We believe the Bible teaches that there's one God in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God. Now, the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force. It's not like Star Wars and the force be with you, okay? The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an it, all right? So he's a person, and and he loves Jesus, and he lives in in communion with Jesus, and he he always lives to exalt Jesus and to point people to Jesus and and to uh, lead people to worship and to know uh, Jesus Christ. And so here the Spirit of God is showing up in a unique, way. This has never happened before. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came upon individuals for certain functions and tasks, but now the Spirit of God is coming to empower all God's people to take the gospel to the nations. So this is a very unique pivot. This is something new that's happening in God's redemptive history, and it's miraculous, really. And so here is Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, and he's trying to put into words what happened in language that we can understand, but you've got to understand, give him a break, okay? It's, it's miraculous, it's hard to understand, and so he'll use the word like in here to try to help us understand what's happening. For example, he said that when, this, when the Spirit of God came, it was like, look at, look at it, it was like the sound of a violent rushing wind. That's what they heard, a sound like a violent rushing wind. I don't know if you've ever heard the wind howling before, right? The wind howling, or some people say in a tornado, it sounds like a freight train coming down the track. Uh, but, but the sound of this wind rushing, that, that's kind of what they heard in that moment. Now, why is that significant? Because in the Old Testament, God was described sometimes as showing up in a wind. In Job 38 verse 1, it says that Job encountered God and God spoke to him through the whirlwind. So sometimes God showed up uh, in a mighty, mighty wind. I think about Nicodemus when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And he said, you know, when the Spirit of God moves, it's like the wind. You don't see him physically, but you see his power. You see him working. You see the change that happens. That's what God is like. And so here are these Jewish believers, and now they hear the wind. I'm sure their mind is going, man, you know, God showing up in a wind. Uh, we, we have some reference for that. But not only did he show up with something like the sound of a wind, but they, he also saw something like, like fire. And it was like on people's heads. That wasn't really fire. Their hair wasn't on fire, all right? But, but it was like that, all right? And again, this is an Old Testament allusion to the presence of God because many times in the Bible, in the Old Testament, God showed up in a fire. 
Uh, I could probably say, can I come up with some uh, illustrations of this? And you could probably pop them off pretty quick, right? Like the Israelites were led by a pillar of fire at night. God showing up, leading his people in the wilderness as a fire. Or the fire coming down from heaven, you know, on Mount Carmel. You know, that was God showing up, you know. Or uh, Moses in the burning bush, and it wasn't really consumed. It was like a fire, but God was speaking. Uh, Jesus' eyes in Revelation 1 are, are on fire or like fire. And so the point is that this sound of the wind and the appearance of fire are Old Testament allusions to the presence of God. And here they realize that God has shown up. That they are here in this upper room and the Spirit of God is moving in their presence in a way they've never seen him before. Well, what does the Holy Spirit do for us? That's an important question. What does the Holy Spirit do for us? Uh, if you're taking notes, I'm going to go through these really quick, so you're going to have to write really fast. But I'm going to give you seven things real quick that the Holy Spirit does for believers uh, in our life. Number one, he convicts us. John 16 tells us when we do something wrong and we feel the grief of that and we know it's wrong. That's the Holy Spirit going, hey, you know, I want to change that, you know. That's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Number two, uh, he secures us. Ephesians 1.13 says that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ. That when you pray to receive Christ, you're, you're eternally secure by the work of the Holy Spirit. Number three, he helps us understand God's word. John 16 says he leads us into truth. And so many times people say, man, when, before I came to Christ, I would read the Bible. It didn't make any sense to me. But now I've given my life to Christ. Like all of a sudden the light bulb's coming on. How do I explain that? Well, it's the Holy Spirit just putting the pieces together, helping us to understand God's word better. Another thing the Holy Spirit does for us, number four, is he leads us in decisions. Romans 14 says that if we belong to Christ, then we're led by the Spirit of God. And how many of us have decisions we need to make, right? And we're praying for the Spirit of God to lead us. Do I say something? Do I not? Do I do that? Do I not? The Holy Spirit will lead you in the decisions you need to make. Another thing the Holy Spirit does is he changes us on the inside. He really is the one that brings internal change that he, he's going to change our want-tos to want the things of God and to not want the things that we used to do. It's the Holy Spirit that does that, produces fruit of love and joy and peace and patience. When somebody looks at you and goes, man, you're just not the same person you used to be. That's because of the work, the changing work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Uh, number six, he comforts us when we're discouraged, when we feel alone. When we're hurting, it's the Holy Spirit that reminds us of God's presence and reminds us of God's promises. And number seven, uh, he empowers us to serve God. He empowers us with spiritual gifts to serve God in the body of Christ. Now, what's interesting is uh, several years ago, uh, I did a, just an in-depth two-year study of the life of Jesus. And it's amazing. We could do a whole series on this, uh, on how we see Jesus living in the power of the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, uh, doing works uh, of the Spirit, having wisdom of the Spirit. And Jesus, everything he did in his flesh was done by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what God wants for you and for me. He wants us to constantly be changing, constantly be growing, constantly looking more and more like him 
him as the spirit of God works on us. And really what should be happening is the longer we walk in our Christian walk, we should be thinking more like Jesus and acting more like Jesus and having the same desires as Jesus and being a, a reflection of Jesus to our family and the people around us. That's what should be happening. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. See, the, the change in the Christian life is not about trying harder. It's allowing the Spirit of God to change us from the inside out. Now, having said that, I want to move to the second question. And that is, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What is the baptism? Because this passage is really describing that. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about that phrase. In fact, if you grew up uh, charismatic Pentecostal, you're like, woohoo, all right, here we go. I mean, you're, you're like used to that language and you're like, man, this, this is gonna be awesome. Uh, about time, right? And if you uh, grew up uh, Baptist or Bible church, you're like, ah, you know, I don't know. I mean, that kind of scares me a little bit. I'm not sure we want to get into that. You know, let's just not talk about, you know, and so we don't need to be, woo, all right. You know, we're just gonna kind of say, what does the Bible say, all right? We just open up the Bible, find out what the Bible says about it. And so uh, let, me, let me try to help you understand it. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, here we go, represents an event in history that inaugurated the church and empowered God's people to fulfill God's mission. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is an event in history that inaugurated the church, that started the church, and empowered God's people to fulfill God's mission. Now, this was something that was spoken about in the Old Testament. In fact, multiple, multiple prophets spoke to it, but uh, Peter, we're going to see this next week, in his sermon quotes from Joel, uh, the prophet Joel chapter 2, verse 28, that says this, After this I will pour out my spirit on all humanity, that your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. He said, there's going to come a time when I'm going to pour out my spirit in a unique way, and you're going to see it. Now, this was something that Joel foresaw that it was going to happen. He didn't know when it was going to happen or how it was going to happen. But God put it on his heart that one day the Spirit of God is going to move in a unique and powerful way, unlike they've seen up to that point. Now, when John the Baptist shows up, he says, hey, it's just right around the corner. When John the Baptist showed up, John said this in Matthew 3, 11, He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one is coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Right? So he's like, man, you've been hearing the prophet say it's coming, and I'm telling you it's around the corner. Well, the, the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to baptize you with the Spirit. And then Jesus talks about it. And if you look over to Acts 1, verse 5, Jesus said this, John baptized you with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Like, it's happening now, all right? So, yeah, it's going to have a way off. John the Baptist around the corner. Jesus said it's, it's going to happen in a couple of days. The Spirit, this baptism of the Holy Spirit is going to take place. And that's really what we're seeing, we're reading in Acts chapter 2. This is the, the, what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit when it birthed the church and empowered the church to take the gospel to the nations. And it was a supernatural act. It was an event that happened in history that is so, so important. Now, you may ask the question, well, are, are people today baptized in the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes. And that happens when you give your life to Christ. When you place your faith in Jesus, 
You are baptized into Christ. The Spirit of God comes to live within you. In fact, that's exactly what um, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says. He says, for we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. Either Jews or Greek, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. See, Paul was saying that we were all, this is something that happens to all of us, right? All of us meaning all believers. He's talking to the church. He said, listen, it's not, this baptism of the spirit isn't just for certain elite people that have a certain experience. No, no, it's for all believers. It's all of us. We've all been baptized into Christ by one spirit. We've all been given the Holy Spirit. Well, how does that happen? How are we all placed into Christ? When do we all receive the Holy Spirit? We receive the spirit at the moment we give our life to Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.13 says, having heard the gospel and believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit of God comes to live within each of us at the moment that we give our lives uh, to Christ. In fact, in Peter's message, when he calls people to repentance, turn to Jesus, repent and be saved. He says, then after that, he says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. So that's going to happen at the moment of your conversion. So that's how the baptism of the Holy Spirit affects us today. When you give your life to Christ, you're placed into Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit at that moment. Praise God for that, right? That's an awesome thing. That's an amazing thing. But listen, uh, we're never called to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. We're not commanded to be baptized. That's something that happens to us at the moment we give our life to Jesus. But we are called and we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Now, what does that mean, to be filled with the Spirit? Well, think about a sail right? You throw a sail up and the wind fills the sail and then it moves it. In the same way, we need to allow the Spirit of God to have his way in us, to fill us, to change us, to lead us, to direct us. Uh, we need to be uh, submissive to the work of the Spirit of God uh, in our life. Ephesians 5.18 says, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit. Uh, the the, the tense of that verb, be filled, is continual, to be continually filled. This should be something that is, you're growing in. You know, I, I've, I've been a Christian now for, gosh, I hate to say this, 50 years. Wow, that's, that sounds really old, just saying that, right? 50 years I've been walking with God. And I sure hope that I'm more progressed in my walk with God today than I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 40 years ago, I should be growing and, and the Spirit of God working and changing me, right? That's how it ought to happen, that we're constantly being filled and changed by the Spirit of God to look more and more like Jesus. And it's a day-by-day -day process. This isn't an emotional thing. It's not like you got to get goosebumps all the time. It's basically like, let's say, this is how it works in my life. You know, I'm, I'm in the morning reading God's word, praying together. And usually when I wrap up, I'll say something like this. Spirit of God, I want you to fill me and use me today. I want you to change the things that you don't like. Convict me of them. Make me really sensitive to you. And leave me and prompt me in the things you want to do. Change me on the inside out to look more like you. And that's what it practically means. That's why in Galatians 5, he says to keep in step with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. It's a day-by-day, step-by-step submission, surrender to the work of the Spirit of God in your life. And if you do that, day-by-day, little-by-little, the Spirit of God begins to change you. Now, let's just be really honest. For a lot of people, you're not seeing a lot of change. 
In fact, you're kind of stuck. You don't see a greater heart for God's word or greater heart for people that are lost or you're not seeing more love or patience or kindness in you. You're not seeing a lot of change. In fact, you're kind of stuck right the way you were five years ago, 10, 20 years ago. Why is that? There are two things that you can do that really halt the work of the Spirit of God in your life. And I believe that this is what, these are, these are two ditches that Christians fall into that really hinder our walk and our spiritual growth. Here's the first one. You can quench the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, don't stifle the Spirit. Or some versions say, don't quench the Spirit. The word quench there means to pour water on. It's like you got a fire and you pour water on it. Right? You're going to put it out. And you can literally pour water on your own spiritual growth by stifling or quenching the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, let me give you a couple examples. When you resist his prompting, you're quenching the spirit. For example, let's say in the middle of a message, uh, you're hearing uh, a message on forgiveness, and all of a sudden the spirit of God says, you know, you really need to forgive your mom for what she did to you or your dad for how he treated you, or you really need to forgive your child for the way they treat you, or whatever the case may be. And the spirit of God's making that really clear to you. If you go, you want they're going to have to do that first. They're going to have to take the first step. I'm not going to do that. What are you doing? You're quenching the Spirit of God. When, uh, when you have sin in your life and you know it and, and you're hearing a message or you're reading God's Word and God points out, hey, you need to turn from this area. You're going, well, I'm not going to turn from that now. Maybe later I'll deal with that, but not today. I'm quenching the Spirit of God. When you, when you're, maybe you're hearing someone preach the word and, and the spirit of God says, you need to serve in this way. You need to get involved in this area. And you go, yeah, I really don't have time. I really don't want to do that. And, and, and you're just quenching the spirit of God. I guess I could put it simply this way. When you're saying no to the spirit of God's prompting, convicting work, then you're quenching the spirit. You're pouring water and it causes you to be stuck and you're not growing you're not moving forward. You're not growing, uh, becoming more and more like Christ. You're stuck where you are because you're saying no to the Spirit of God who brings change in your life. So quenching the Spirit is something that hinders the work of God. Another thing that you can do is you can grieve the Spirit. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. Spirit. Did you know there's some things you can do that actually makes God feel sorrowful? That literally breaks God's heart? Yeah, I was thinking about that this week. And there's a passage out of Isaiah where it talks about God's relationship with Israel. And it really brought this to a word picture for me. I want to just quickly read it. Isaiah 63 verse 9. It says, he redeemed them, that is God redeemed Israel. He redeemed them because of his love and compassion. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of the past, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. It's almost like a, like a parent that loves their child. And man, brought this child in the world and fed this child in a high chair and taught him to walk and taught him to crawl and was there for every soccer game and, you know, every, every baseball game and all the things, the cheer practice and dance and all the stuff you do and just giving, 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 showing love and compassion and tender and only to have that child at some point turn against you 
and return your love with resentment and hatred. Now listen, some of you are going through that right now. You know exactly what that feels like. You know the grief that that would cause a parent to have. And he said, that's how God feels about us. When we say, God, I don't want to do your thing. I don't want to go your way. I want to live my own way. That grieves the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you something. Can you recall times when you've grieved the Holy Spirit? I know I can. I mean, I could go back to days in college, right? (laughs) When I know I was doing things that break God's heart. But I don't have to go back to college. I could probably just go back to last week. When there were things that I've done that I know, I almost feel instinctively that, okay, I just grieved the Spirit of God by reacting that way or saying that or having this attitude that doesn't align with his heart. So when you quench the Spirit of God and when you grieve the Spirit of God, you really stop your own spiritual progress. You're no longer allowing the Spirit of God to control you and change you. You're no longer being filled with the Spirit. You're actually working against him. And so all, what God wants to do is he wants to change you on the inside out, all right? So we talked about who is the Holy Spirit. We talked about the uh, baptism of the Spirit is when we receive Christ at salvation, but we're called to be filled with the Spirit, to stay in step with him and to allow him to change us from the inside out. So that kind of leads us to the last question. How can I know that the Spirit of God is working in me? How can I know that the Spirit of God is working in me? Bill Bright, in his book on the Holy Spirit, uh, has a quote. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He said, he is the commander-in-chief of the army of Christ. He is the Lord of the harvest, supreme in revival, evangelism, and missionary endeavor. Without his consent, plans are bound to fail. If it, it behooves us as Christians to fit our tactical operations into the plan of his strategy, which is reviving the church and evangelizing the world. In other words, what he's saying is this. The Spirit of God uh, gets really fired up about reviving the church and winning people that are far from God. That's what he's fired up about. The Spirit of God is really motivated to to revive us and make us more like Jesus and send us out uh, to our neighborhoods and our, our workplace and to places around the world to share the gospel to see people come to faith in Jesus. And so listen, one of the ways that you can know that God's Spirit is really working in you, listen, is when you have a heart for people that are far from God. I think that's one of the key indicators that you're filled with the Spirit of God is when your heart breaks for those who are far from God. Look at what it says in Acts 2 verse 4. It says, they began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. What does this mean? There's been a lot of controversy about this. What does this actually mean? Well, you might circle the word tongues there. The word tongue is the word glossa uh, in the Greek, a glossa. Uh, which we get the word glossary from, it means a literal, actual language, okay? It doesn't mean a static speech. Uh, it doesn't mean a, a, the language of angels or anything like that. It means an actual, discernible language. 
And God did a miracle on this day when the Spirit of God came to inaugurate the church and empower them for the mission. He, he, he gave them this, this encounter, this experience where they were able to like start speaking in a language they didn't know. I mean, it'd be like me starting to speak Farsi. I can't even spell Farsi, much less speak it, all right? So, you know, I mean, I don't know how to do that, but they, they just started speaking in these languages and people understood them and these were actual literal languages. It was a miracle. I mean, it was something that, that, that's super unique that's never happened before. And I, I think we have to remember that, again, this is a transitional period in, in God's history. It's something new that God's doing. We don't necessarily need to rec recreate that. We can't recreate it. All right? It's like going to the Red Sea and saying, I'm going to recreate the crossing of the Red Sea. Well, no, you're not, okay? That happened, it had its place, and now we're moving on. Or I'm going to go out to the wilderness, and I'm going to, we're going to recreate the manna experience. Well, we, no, it's not going to happen, all right? We, we, we've already been there, and the same thing is true here with Pentecost. The Spirit of God came, he filled them in a unique way with a unique sign, the speaking in languages that they did not know, to empower them for the mission but why did God do this? Why this speaking in these languages? Well, let me give you two reasons. One is it was a sign that God was doing something new. It was a sign. In fact, what's really cool is when you go back and look at, at Acts chapter 1, there's a blueprint for how God's going to get the, the gospel to the world. Right? And the blueprint says first Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and the world. Right? That's the blueprint. Right? That's the strategic plan. That's how we're going to get the gospel out. And what's cool is every time you see the gospel moving out into new people groups, there would be this sign of people speaking in languages that, in a supernatural way that validated that they were hearing the gospel just like we did. So in Acts chapter 2, uh, they heard, uh, heard uh, the, the gospel and, and they, they spoke in these languages. When you, when you see the gospel moving to Samaria, it happens again. When you see the gospel moving to Cornelius, this, uh, this Gentile, it happens again. When you see the gospel going to Ephesus, it happens again. And the reason is because at every one of these places, uh, they're validating, yes, they heard the same gospel, they were changed like we were, and the same Spirit of God came to rest on them just like it did on us. And that was a real controversial thing because they're like, wait, wait, the gospel is like for us, like for Jews. It's not for these Gentiles, right? And they can't truly be saved, can they? And uh, in, in Acts 15, they actually had a conference called the Jerusalem Council to find out if Gentiles could be saved. And the answer was yes, and aren't you glad? <laughs> because we wouldn't be saved, right, if, if that wasn't the case. But, but they said the same sign with us was with them, and this brought unity to the body. God was doing something new. It was Jews and Gentiles together, and, and that's why in, in 1 Corinthians 12, he could say, you know, you know, we've all received this same Spirit of God. It's a unifying factor. We all have been baptized into Christ by one Spirit, no matter what a background. It's a beautiful sign of what God was doing in developing the church and this global mission of the church. This is why we can go to uh, Zambia and embrace our brothers and sisters in Christ because they've same, received the same spirit that we have. They've heard the same gospel that we have. And we go to Montreal and do the same thing. Uh, all different languages, different cultures, but one gospel, one God, one spirit that unites us all. All right, so it was a sign of that. It was also a means to get the, the message out. And notice that they, when they start speaking these different languages, people started listening. Uh, check it out in verse 5. It says, 
Now there are Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, a crowd came together and were confused because each one of them was speaking in their in his own language. He heard them speaking in his own language, and they were astounded and amazed, saying, "Look, aren't these uh, who uh, look? Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans?" How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? That phrase native language is where we get the word dialect from. It's a Greek word where we get the word dialect. How are we hearing? Aren't these guys Galileans? You know, the Galileans were like the the redneck group, right? You know, they had their sleeves torn off their shirts and their pickups jacked up and their trucker hat on backward. I mean, like, how are these guys speaking in our dialect? It's a miracle, really. And they were hearing them speak about the great things of God. It was a miracle, really. They were hearing about God's great work in their own language. You say, well, what language is he talking about? Well, look at verse 9. He lists 16 uh, countries here, Parthians, Medes, uh, Elamites, uh, those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jew and convert, uh, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongue. And they were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? <laughs> what does this mean? It means that God's doing something new. God's taking the gospel to the nations. Jesus traveled among the Jewish settlements to take the gospel initially. Now he's going to send them out into the world. And we get to be a part of that. Some people say, you know that the Spirit of God is really with you, that you're really filled with the Spirit when you have an emotional experience. You know you're really uh, in the Spirit when you, have, uh, when you speak some ecstatic speech. But looking in the book of Acts, what we find is that they, we know you're really filled with the Spirit when you have the heart to take the gospel to those who are far from God. That's how you know. That's the definitive sign that you're passionate for the things that God is passionate for. Acts 4.31, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. You know, God changes us from the inside out. He does that by his Holy Spirit. And he is the one that comes into our life when we receive Christ. He's the one that wants to change us and wants to give us a mission and a purpose. Back to Jim Ranella. He said his dad was getting older and was near death. And he said he was having his time with the Lord just in prayer, praying for his dad. When he felt the words come into his heart, he said, Jim, your dad is now with me in heaven. He didn't know what to think about that. And then suddenly the phone rang and he went to pick up the phone and it was someone from his family notifying him that his dad had just passed away. And he said, you know what, he, he, he said, as I put the phone down, he said, I realize that a leopard really does change his spots, that God can change anybody. Listen, God wants to change you. He wants to change you from the inside out. And he does it as you surrender to the work of his spirit in your life. Why not you bow your heads with me for just a minute? Maybe you're here today and... Uh, you haven't seen God change you very much. In fact, as you 
have been listening to this message, you, maybe the Spirit of God's been putting his finger on some areas of your life that you've been grieving him or you've been quenching his work in your life. Maybe you realize you need the Spirit of God to change you and to give you a heart for the nation, give you a heart for the people around you that are far from God. Then why don't you ask him to do it? Say, Lord, I'm surrendering to you today. I wanna surrender to all that you have for me. Lord, I thank you for your word today. Thank you that it's rich and it's true. And Lord, we just surrender ourselves to you today. Lord, we don't want to fight you. We don't want to resist you. We don't want to say no to you. And Lord, we can, right now, you're bringing to mind things we could confess that have hindered your work in our heart, in our life. But Lord, I pray that as we start this new year, there would be a new surrender to you, a new resolve to follow you and to trust you and to rely on you. Spirit of God, change us, mold us, use us, send us out from this place to take a message of hope to the world around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.